happens when your thriller about a deadly pandemic comes out in the middle of a deadly pandemic? Lawrence Wright will be here to discuss the end of October. How do you build a novel with a former political interrogator as your central character? Dahlia Sofer will join us to talk about her new book, Man of My Time. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from the New York Times. It's May 1st. I'm Pamela Paul. Lawrence Wright joins us now from Austin, Texas. He is a staff writer at The New Yorker, the author of many, many excellent books, including 13 Days in September, which was a 10 best books of the New York Times book review, God Save Texas, Going Clear About Scientology, The Looming Tower, and now a new book called The End of October, which is a novel. Larry, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Pamela. Your last book was God Save Texas, nonfiction. I believe there was a play in between, and now this. I'm just curious how you go from one project to the next, and and forgive me if I skipped a project that may have been in between as well. Years ago, I made a resolution that I would only do things that were important or fun. It was, you know, I was in a state of confusion about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, you know, I, as a journalist, I like to be on the important stories of the day, but I also realized I didn't want to give up the things that were really joyful. And so those are the pole stars of my career. And I think it's sort of understandable that I would now be working on a musical. But, you know, if you take those as your pole stars, then I think you can have a pretty interesting career. Are they ever important and fun? Yes, this book was. I know it sounds, you know, it's, it's, it's a rather bleak book, but I really had a wonderful time researching it and going into the world of, of you know public health and all these swashbuckling intellectuals. I just admired them so much. So I, I really had a good time working on this book. All right. I'm going to cut to the chase and let everyone know who doesn't know already that the end of October is a fictional story of a pandemic. So before we get into more about it, I want to go back again to the origin stories. You've said that the director, Ridley Scott, asked you a question after reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road and that that was your inspiration. What was the question? And when did he ask this? When were you sitting around with Ridley Scott talking about this? Oh, this was a decade ago. And he his question was, what happened? Because Cormac didn't say anything about what event or force of nature had brought civilization to heal. So I started thinking about what could do that. And of course, I thought about nuclear war, but I was a young reporter covering diseases out of the Center for Disease Control. In 1976, there was a swine flu outbreak and then the Legionnaire's disease. And I had become enchanted with that world and the courage and ingenuity of the people that I found there. And so I I thought it would be an interesting place to find a hero because I felt that those people that I met were really heroic and that disease had been underestimated as a problem for our society in modern times. So Ridley Scott asks you this question about a decade ago, and you had been thinking about it because you had reported on disease, you know, over the years. When did you actually start working on this novel? Ridley never made the movie. So like, (laughs) it's the destiny of so many projects in Hollywood. And about in 2017, I'd been thinking about this. The story still was in my mind. So I decided I would go back and work it on it, work on it as a novel. And this time I would dive into the research even more deeply and let the story emerge more naturally rather than cinematically. So that's that's how the novel got started. Well, you are such a master. You're a master of many forms, but I Love your nonfiction so much. There's so much research and material in this. Did you pause it all to think maybe this should be nonfiction? I did consider writing about more diseases, but, you know, I'd already had an imaginary character and a world in which it was set. And I I got attracted to the idea of, of attempting it as a novel. It seemed a challenge for me, and I wanted to see if I could do it. Who was that imaginary character? Well, the name of my hero is Henry Parsons. 
in the late 19th century in England, there was another influenza outbreak, and a young epidemiologist named Henry Parsons was the first to prove that it was caused by contagion and not by miasmas in the environment. You know, he's a totally forgotten figure, but I decided to tip my hat to him and name my character Henry Parsons. He is a man whose own life has been touched rather savagely by disease. And he works out of the Center for Disease Control, where I had done my early reporting. And he's an epidemiologist who's confronted many diseases in the past, but has always known that there was one awaiting him that was going to be the big challenge. So the CDC is in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. But this novel, The Breakout, begins elsewhere. You have it really kind of take hold in Mecca. Why did you choose to do that? Well, after 9-11, when I was working on my book, The Looming Tower, the Saudis wouldn't let me in as a reporter. So I got a job. I was mentoring young reporters at the Saudi Gazette in Jeddah, which is bin Laden's hometown. And one of my very first jobs was to supervise their coverage of the Hajj. And I was, you know, I was not allowed to go to Mecca myself. But I was in communication every day with my reporters, and I was very struck at the time about the hazard of gathering millions of people in one place from all over the world and having every year some disease arise, sometimes more than one, and there's an epidemic in Mecca, and then people get on airplanes and they fly home. Well, you know, what if it was something really dangerous? Suppose it was like the 1918 flu. That was in my thoughts, even when I was living in Saudi Arabia. Enter the Kongali flu, right? This is your fictional virus. Tell us about that sickness and how did you come to describe what this flu would be like? Why a flu even? Influenza is still unconquered. It's the great killer. It, you know, every year we, we lose maybe, you know, 50,000 people to influenza. It's a, it's a very dangerous disease, clever in a way in that it's always mutating and you never know what's going to show up the next year. I mean, the, the flu itself that comes every year is sort of a descendant of that 1918 original Spanish flu, right? That's correct, Pamela. We're right now the seasonal flu is H1N1, which is the strain that killed between 50 and 100 million people in 1918. And I said, as a young reporter, I had done stories out of the Center for Disease Control, but one of them in 1976 was a sudden outbreak of H1N1, which is what public health officials had been dreading their entire careers. And it was a young man, a recruit in an army base, Fort Dix in New Jersey, David Lewis suddenly, after a, a long march, came back to the barracks and died. They examined the tissues and discovered it was H1N1. And of course, a tremendous panic took place. And I went all over, you know, talking to people in Fort Dix and, and to the members of David Lewis's family and so on. And the big mystery was he was the only one who died. Hmm. And yet, you know, there was this national vaccine program, and it became a kind of catastrophe for Gerald Ford because people got sick from the vaccine. It was just a total mess. But hanging over this was this peculiar fact. 50 to 100 million people died, you know, a century ago, and then only one. And then in 2009, you know, H1N1 came back as a pandemic. And it was more like seasonal flu and is still with us. But the big question I had was, what would happen if something like the 1918 flu, a brand new novel virus, came into our culture? How would we handle it? Would we be better prepared than our ancestors were in 1918? And so the the flu that I created, Congoli, is really modeled on that old virus, the one that came out in 1918. It was also a hemorrhagic fever. You know, there was no resistance to it in the population. I actually created a template that is based on the progress of the flu in 1918. So in the novel, 
as the flu advances across the globe, it pretty much mirrors what was going on in 1918. We are talking about a lot of very scary, historical and contemporary medical issues here, but I want people to understand this is a thriller. It is fast paced. It's a page turner. Why did you decide to go with that genre? I mean, there have been great, very sad flu novels. They Came Like Swallows comes to mind by William Maxwell and many other ways in which you could explore this. Why a thriller? Well, I was interested in the form and I wanted to write a book that was exciting to read, just as I had been excited to write it. So, you know, I was drawn to that. But also, I saw the disease as a character in the novel, but it functions as a stress on civilization. You know, the, the question the, the novel asks is, how would we react to such a threat? And I had looked at the fractures in our society and the global rivalries that we're engaged in, and I just extended them in what I thought would be a dangerous but logical direction. In your nonfiction, as a reader, it, it feels like you think a lot about pacing of your narrative in The Looming Tower. You know, you start off in one place and then you kind of break and you, on a cliffhanger and you go back and you do similar things in, in, I mean, 13 Days in September was probably your most, to my mind, kind of straightforward chronological narrative. How did you think about pacing with a thriller? Because so much of what makes a good thriller is about that, that kind of propulsive quality. Thank you for asking that. I give a lot of thought to this. Uh, a, a friend of mine, Kurt Ludke, who was had been the editor of the Detroit Free Press long ago and then became a screenwriter, once suggested to me what he called the rubber band theory. And that is, if you pose a question like, what kind of disease is this? Well, you don't answer it right away. You, you know, you stretch it out. And, yes. You know, you allow the, you know, the, your hero to struggle with it. And, you know, the more you stretch it. It's the like more the Alfred Hitchcock. It is exactly the same. It's the same theory. But there's this sense of joy and relief when you finally solve the puzzle. And so, you know, the, that's that idea of, of creating tension. That's what makes the pages turn. The other thing you need to do is have a character that you know, in my nonfiction, I always call that character a donkey because a donkey is a useful beast of burden who can carry the reader into a world he has never known and also carry a lot of information on his back that is all the more important to the reader when he cares about the character. So Henry Parsons serves that function in the novel. Well, speaking of that burden of information, there is a lot of serious research in here. Was that tricky for you, part of the challenge, trying to keep that pace and yet still insert all of that reporting that you had done? I have to admit, I loved doing the research. And I, I once I get caught up in this sort of thing, I, you know, especially like the lore that goes along with being in a world like public health. I mean, there's so much fascinating material and so many extraordinary characters that have been a part of the history of public health. And I wanted to get that in. I guess partly I'm just drawn to real events and real people. And so I saw this novel as a, a kind of mixture of fiction and fact. And uh, I wanted to write about the things that fascinated me and hope that I could find readers that would be drawn to the same kind of material. I mean, a thriller like this, which is so based, in fact, in research that you did in terms of talking to people in the government and scientists and the military, I feel like the challenge is similar to with historical fiction, where you, if you also do a lot of research, like where do you then have that leap of imagination as Hilary Mantel does in her Wolf Hall trilogy, like when do you decide to invent? And as someone who is trained as a reporter, I wonder, do you ever hesitate? Like, well, I can't make that up, or is that kind of freeing? You set traps for yourself, and then you have to figure out how to solve them. For instance, I've got to have my hero find a way to combat this dangerous disease. I talk a lot about vaccines and, you know, they're in a rush to try to create a vaccine, but Henry has to figure it out. 
and I, and I don't want to give away any any don't ever give away plot, but he's in a very tight spot. And so fortunately, I had done all this research and talked to all these experts, and and they were very helpful. I think interested and somewhat amused by my attempt. So I, I would pose to them, and these are some of the people that are creating the vaccines right now. Right. And I said, here's the problem, and here's the situation. Help, help, how would we be able to deal with this? And, the, and they got kind of excited by the intellectual challenge, and that's essentially, they're, they're puzzle breakers themselves. So when I presented them with these brain twisters, things that I could never resolve, they were ready to come on board. And I really had, I had tremendous help in trying to figure out how my hero would solve this classic intellectual problem of public health. Well, this was all theoretical, or if not theoretical, at least not completely grounded in the here and now when you were doing your research. Do you feel like you got any kind of window into what our current crisis, how it might resolve itself from the speculation that some of the researchers that you spoke to offered? Oh, I, I think there are two things that I would take away. One is that we have the assistance of some of the greatest minds in, in public medicine, and they're on the case. And I, I feel like, you know, we're well served by the scientists who are addressing this issue, and they're totally committed to the cause. On the other hand, I do think that it's going to be a while before we've resolved this issue. Vaccines, they say maybe a year or a year and a half, but there's no guarantee that they'll come up with a vaccine that's really effective. Right. One hopes that they will, but uh, we have to also accommodate ourselves to the possibility that this is going to be a long-term problem. I keep thinking about that, that four years to the mumps vaccine. Yeah, there was an attempt to create a SARS vaccine. You know, SARS, just think if if SARS had been the epidemic that we're dealing with instead of COVID-19, we'd be in a lot worse shape. SARS killed about 10% of all the people that it infected. In MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which came after that, killed 35%. So we could have been facing a far more dangerous disease than we are right now. And I should say, one day we will. But if SARS were our opponent, they tried to create a vaccine for SARS. One of the problems with the vaccine that it was that in some cases, it made the infection worse. And then SARS was contained through a miraculous effort of public health officials within 100 days. It is a triumph. But unfortunately, the, the money to create a vaccine that would have addressed SARS successfully was stopped. And so, you know, we had to go back to the beginning in order to create a vaccine that was to a similar disease. When you were researching the book, this is a kind of tricky question because it's a then and now question. What was the scariest thing that you came upon in researching this fictional book? And is it the same thing that scares you now? One of the aspects of an RNA virus, which is like the flu, is an RNA virus, and so is COVID-19. What does that mean, an RNA virus? Well, there's DNA, you know, and then there's RNA. And, uh, you know, these are the building blocks of life. Some viruses, like smallpox, is a DNA virus, and it's very stable. It doesn't change very much over time. But RNA viruses mutate. and that's why every year, you know, when they're trying to create a flu vaccine, they have to guess where this virus is going. So far, COVID-19 has been pretty stable, but it does change and it can mutate. It could become more or less contagious or more or less fatal. But we have to anticipate that there, there might be some change in it. And that makes it a very difficult opponent. And we're still so much in the dark ages on what it is and what it does to us. Does it reinfect people who've already had it? Some people seem to be shedding virus for 60 days. When does that ever happen? You know, this whole business of people being infectious without having symptoms, these are very unusual qualities. And now that we're seeing that it's affecting hearts, 
maybe has some effect on onset of dementia. There are all these aspects to this particular disease that are shocking and and hard to counter. So, you know, it's it's a I think you have to give credit to the scientists who are struggling to figure this one out because it's really unusual. How do you think this novel would have looked if you had begun working on it now as opposed to in 2017? Well, another way of asking that question is, what did I get right and what did I get wrong? <laughs> I was asking it nicely. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I underestimated the uh, solidarity of ordinary people in the face of this onslaught to quarantine themselves at great personal loss. You know, people have lost jobs. People have lost society it's been a profound scar on the body of history just because of that. So I didn't give people enough credit. On the other hand, governments have behaved as expected or worse. So I think I was, I was accurate to the point of charity in depicting how governments behaved. Oh, let's go to that then. The government response and the way in which that's been handled. How are you feeling about that part of the news these days? You know, there's absolutely no leadership or plan in place that everyone can cohere around. The mixed signals have been very confusing. I think it's a tribute to people that they're just doing what they think is the right thing to do to protect themselves and their families because the governments are not doing a good job. I say governments. I mean, all over the world, people, you know, countries are taking different approaches. And even within our own country, States are taking different approaches. Right, cities are taking. It, exactly, break it down. You could go block by block almost. But So there's a lot of confusion about what is the best response. And, the, you know, unfortunately, the government, the federal government, should be taking some leadership in this and, and with a clear plan. But it's like a, a potato sack race. You know, <laughs> there's constant stumbling. And what's so irritating to me is that, you know, two years ago, I was out in the field talking to people, what would happen if if we had such a disease? And they all told me what would happen. And they also, they knew how unprepared we were. And all the things that I'm getting credit for being so prescient about, the truth is, these were all things that people in public health told me would happen. And I just represented their anxiety in the novel. And so when I read the newspaper and it feels like another chapter from my book, it it really, you know, the, you know, the debt should go to the people who knew and who tried to make their anxiety clear to the government. The difference between the novel and the reaction of the administration is that I listened to these voices. Well, speaking of listening to voices and the government, I mean, your last book before this was God Save Texas, where you did a lot of reporting about your home state. You are in Austin, which was also the site of some recent protests against quarantine. What do things look like for you down in in Austin? Well, you know, Austin made one really great decision, which was to cancel South by Southwest. It was a terrible choice for the city because South by was a main revenue source for a lot of our restaurants and bars and bands and so on. And, you know, the very people who don't have a social safety net underneath them. And so had we gone ahead and had South by, we would have been in the same situation as New Orleans was following St. Patrick's Day and Mardi Gras. And then we let out the students from UT, which is, you know, there are 50,000 students and about that many faculty and staff. So the city slimmed down early on. Unfortunately, you know, with, with all that we've done, the one thing Texas hasn't done is test. And the governor is trying to find a way to start reopening. In fact, just yesterday, he issued some new rules uh, about uh, some stores that are going to be allowed to open again and so on. I'm totally in favor of trying to get the economy back as soon as possible. But trying to get it back without tests means that you're just doing it on wish, not on science. And, you know, Texas is 
near the bottom in the number of people per capita that we've tested. So we're essentially doing this on a prayer. And I think that's a mistake. I don't want to see us get into the situation where we have to open the doors and then re-isolate ourselves at some time in the near future. It's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of my colleagues, to readers, listening to people across the internet, what they're saying about what they're reading. And people seem to fall into one of two camps. They're either diving in full bore into the moment or they're reading to escape. I think one of the most amazing things about this book at this moment is that it manages to do both. I don't know how you did that, Larry, (laughs) but uh, the book is The End of October. It comes out this week. Larry, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Lawrence Wright's book, again, is called The End of October. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Dahlia Sofer joins us now from New York. She is the author, most recently, of a new novel. It's called Man of My Time, and it's reviewed this week on the cover of the book review. Dahlia, thanks for being here. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for having me. Dahlia, this is a novel that spans three decades, two continents, and you have a very complicated narrator. Tell us about Man of My Time. A Man of My Time is a story that's narrated in the first person from the point of view of Hamid Mozaffarian. He is a man who starts out in life as rather a solitary boy. He is at odds with his family. He grows up to be quite involved. The story takes place in Iran. So he grows up to be quite involved in the Iranian revolution of 78-79. He has a break with his family. The family leaves for America. He chooses to stay. And he becomes more deeply involved in the new government, sort of against his better judgment. And it takes him some decades to extract himself from that situation. At the time when we meet him, he is working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's in New York and has been contacted by his family to retrieve his father's ashes and take them back to Iran. You've set yourself up with a narrator that people are kind of going to instinctively, or many people, shudder at. This is a person who was an interrogator for the state of Iran under revolutionary government. Was that what interested you, figuring out how does someone end up in that position? I think so. I think the two narratives of what we think of as perpetrator and victim, I've felt for a long time that they are inextricably linked. And so having sort of lived on one side for a long time, I wanted to inhabit the other side and maybe even talk to the other side and or talk through the other side. And yeah, this and, and it was a challenge for me too to just really inhabit this man. And I wasn't so interested in the actual actions he may commit, but rather in his psyche. Tell us a little bit about Hamid Mosafarian's family and what place they occupied in pre-revolutionary Iran under the Shah and why he began to react against that. Hamid's father, Sadeh, is he starts out in life as quite an activist. He is an art historian, and over the years, he switches allegiances, and then he gets a job at the Ministry of Culture. And he sort of lets go of his former revolutionary ideals, or at least progressive ideals. They are upper middle class. The mother is or claims to be a descendant of a Qajar king. And he has another brother, Omid, who has literary tendencies. Hamid always felt alienated by the pretensions of his family 
And the family is somewhat emotionally deficient, let's say. So those were some of the driving forces. But I didn't want to create this sort of cause and effect. That's why the father is really not a terrible father. He's not great, but he's not really a terrible father. I didn't want it to be, well, he had a terrible father, therefore he did this. And also, I must say, he's an unlikely character because someone who ends up as an interrogator in reality probably would not be of Hamid's background. And I try to address that in the book by saying that he was an anomaly. How so? Who would the normal or not normal, but maybe typical interrogator under that regime be? Well, it wouldn't be someone who is educated as Hamid has been in this kind of, you know, the best schools and sort of westernized education and in the upper echelons of society. It would probably be somebody who perhaps came from from the villages, didn't have the best education, just was a, from a different socioeconomic class. So, you know, I went in knowing that Hamid is somewhat of an anomaly and his co-workers, so to speak, make fun of him, or at least it is revealed to him at the end that they consider him as somewhat separate from them. Why did you make that choice? Did you want to not allow people to draw an easy line and say, oh, well, it's because of the father, it's because he had no education that you wanted to complicate it? That was part of the reason, for sure. I wanted to not make it so black and white and predictable. And also for me as a writer, it would have been difficult and I think not even correct to try to be in the mind of someone that I really cannot inhabit in terms of someone who has come from one of the villages and who grew up under certain circumstances. So I didn't even want to take that pretense. Well, that brings into the conversation, of course, your own background. You were born in Iran. Your family immigrated to the United States shortly after the revolution. Can you talk a little bit about your own child, your own family, why and when you decided to leave Iran? We initially left right after the revolution, as many people did in 79. But then we went back. My father made a decision to go back. And then my mother followed and she took two of us back. My brothers stayed outside. So we stayed until nearly 1983. And those years were kind of seminal for me. They were difficult, but I am also glad that I lived them because they really informed me in terms of what happened after the revolution. So you were living under the post-revolutionary government from the age of roughly seven, eight until you were 11 years old. What are your memories of life in Iran during that period and how different was it before the revolution? Oh, everything changed. I mean, you know, schools, we used to be in a French school that closed, so it became state-sponsored type education. But those, again, I, I, I want to specify that those years are very different than what's happening now. It was very difficult. It was oppressive. The first 10 years after the revolution were difficult and oppressive. And my father was imprisoned, as I've sort of alluded to in the past. And also we had to start wearing scarves and, you know, uniforms. So life became restrained. Your first novel, The Septembers of Shiraz, took place in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. And as you just said, you're talking in this novel that, you know, things have changed a lot in the subsequent 35 years. Was part of the reason you wanted to span that period in Man of My Time to be able to reckon with those changes over these past few decades? Yes. For one thing, I think that people assume that nothing has changed that Iran still has the same government that it did 35 years ago. So that was something I wanted to revisit. But also, my own understanding of the revolution shifted somewhat. I think for a long time, I ascribed to the uh, commonplace understanding that it was a movement that was 
rather swift, or at least whose manifestation was rather swift, even though there was a lot of discourse before, and that it was hijacked at the 11th hour by the clerics. And the more I read and processed, I understood that that view is somewhat simplistic. The idea that it was secular versus religious really isn't quite accurate and doesn't capture the full complexity of the movement. The fact is everybody wanted social justice in that way. Everybody was united. And religion, for some, wasn't antithetical to that. It was one pathway to that religion seen as social action. So I realized that things weren't quite that binary. Well, for your narrator, Hamid Muzaffarian, what is his view? Is is he approaching the revolution from a social justice perspective? And does religion play into his own motivations? One of the things that are problematic with him is that he doesn't quite develop a full ideology of his own. He's somebody who vacillates a lot. And so he picks up one theory, then he picks up another, and he's sort of haphazard about how he goes about it. Eventually, I think for him, it does become about social justice, but I don't think religion is a part of it. He just sees that Religion is something that does speak to a lot of the population, perhaps not him, but that if that is a tool, then why not use it? What was the hardest part about writing this book for you? I think staying in his head and justifying the things that he's doing, because I felt sympathy for him throughout. So I was never writing him from a judgmental place. And I truly inhabited him. So it was hard for me sometimes to completely understand what he was doing. And it took time to really get to know him and let his actions unfold. It's interesting the way you talk about it and the way some authors talk about their characters, about inhabiting them in a way that an actor might inhabit a role while living it. And I'm interested to know, like, how did that affect your life, sort of being in this novel, in the voice of this man, in his head, who's so different from you, who is, if not a generation older, at least a decade older than you are? Like, What was that like? It was strange, but it was also liberating. I Weirdly, I had fun while writing this book, which doesn't always happen. But there was a freedom to it, to be somebody completely different. And I enjoyed it. It was also challenging. And I had to also writing from the point of view of a man, I had to ask myself if I'm depicting things as accurately as possible. But I enjoyed it. Was this a book that you had other people read for you as friendly readers as you were writing or as you were finishing it up thinking, did I get this right? Did I capture this period correctly? Did I get inside this mindset? Did I write from a man's voice persuasively? Or did you trust yourself on that and not do those kind of consultations? I mostly had to trust myself. I mean, I have a couple of good friends who are readers, so I did share material with them. But I just went with it. And I I knew that I may get some pushback from certain readers because he's not a necessarily, quote, likable character. But I just decided to go with it. So it's interesting having a book come out now, because I imagine that, as you were saying earlier, part of you was trying to address, particularly here in America, this mindset of, of Iran as a kind of very black and white situation and sort of show the the complexities and the lines between Iran and our country and the people who immigrated here. You could not have anticipated that it would come out in the middle of a pandemic. I wonder if that affects how you think readers might receive this book? Or do you just kind of see it apart from our current moment in a way to enter into some completely different space? Yes, yeah, certainly I did not <laughs> predict the pandemic. I don't know that it changes the reception. The only difficult thing, you know, about having a book come out at this time is there is so much hardship out there. So to have a book come out almost seems presumptuous, but that is the timing I'm going to let it live as it needs to. 
Well, let me say, at least from my perspective, it's not presumptuous at all. People are eager for stories. They're eager to continue to explore other perspectives. So congratulations again on the book. Thank you so much. The title again is Man of My Time by Dahlia Sofer, and it's reviewed this week on the cover of the book review. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news to the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. All right. You're going to give us good news or bad news? It's mixed. Um, I would say it's under the circumstances, not terrible, which equals good these days. So the latest figures from NPD BookScan showed that print unit sales were up last week by actually 10%. Wait, how? Well, the thing is they fell tremendously the prior week. So rising 10% is sort of getting back to stability. It's pretty typical for book sales to fall after Easter because there's that big bump of gift buying, but they fell quite a bit more. Sales were down 20% the week ending in April 18th. And so for the week ending in April 25th, they were up 10%. The good news is that was flat with the same period in 2019. So that just shows like how resilient the industry is at this moment when the retail situation is so uncertain and difficult. NPD Books also did an interesting analysis this month of how the pandemic has changed not only what readers are buying, but where they're buying books from. Not surprisingly, print sales at online retailers has grown quite a bit since March and sales at physical retailers has fallen. That's obviously to be expected when bookstores are closed and people are buying everything online. But it's interesting to sort of look at that granularly by region. They also broke that out and they saw that unit sales in the New York City region, which has been the hardest hit region, fell by more than 16%. So that was between March and April 11th. One interesting thing now is things are changing in different states. Some states are opening up businesses slowly. And I think some book retailers feel comfortable now kind of now that some of the hard lockdowns are lifting, doing things like curbside pickup and delivery. And so I think we could gradually see physical retailers coming out of the other side of this. So that's sort of a hopeful trend. And plenty of independents have had a ton of support from authors, from publishers, and from their customers. So the Strand is now open again for online sales and things like that. I think some Barnes & Noble outlets are doing curbside pickup, so you can order online and pick it up outside. People are getting creative, and I think there is some hope. While a lot of you know individual independent stores might not weather this, I think the industry overall is hopeful that some of this will remain intact on the other side. How does this break down between children's books and adult books? So there's still been that tremendous spike in juvenile nonfiction. And I think print sales in particular have been buoyed by that trend. And that's, of course, because everyone is staying home and trying to also homeschool their children. But it was interesting when you look at the sales for last week, adult fiction and nonfiction were both up. So there is evidence that people are turning to books to sort of entertain themselves, distract themselves, educate themselves. And PD did see a a large gain in books about health and also books about the 1918 flu pandemic, medical history books, things like that. So in terms of what adults are reading, people are looking to nonfiction to kind of understand what is happening right now. Alexander, what are you reading? That is an excellent question. I just finished Little Eyes by Samantha Schweblin, who I interviewed remotely through a translator. She is um, in a remote area in Argentina under quarantine, and I love that book. We spoke about it on the podcast last week, and I am looking at a few books that look very interesting that are coming out this summer, and hopefully those won't get pushed back like some of the other books have this year. Can you give us some sense, maybe one title that you're looking at reading? I haven't started it yet, but I'm very excited about Britt Bennett's new novel. I loved her debut novel, The Mothers, so I'm excited to read her next book. And what's that title and when is it coming out? It's called The Vanishing Half and it's coming out June 2nd. So not so far away, although time is sort of fungible these days. It could feel like forever. What about you? What are you excited about for the summer? 
Well, this isn't summer, actually. It's fall. But I just got word yesterday that there is a new Tana French coming this fall. Ooh, yes. Coming I'm in excited October. for that. Her first book since The Witch Elm, which was a standalone. And I love her book. So I I'm, love her, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, fall feels very far away, but there is a ton of good books coming out. So something to look forward to. All right. I'm sure we will talk about many good books before then. Alexandra, talk to you next week. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles and John Williams. Hey, guys. Hey, Pamela. So as you all know, I went into the mothership this week to get some books, take some (laughs) photographs, document the scene. It was so weird being back among my books. And I'm just curious, like, how does it feel being apart from all of those physical books coming in? I was telling a close friend last night that in some ways this time is actually going quicker than I thought it would. And at the same time, it feels like much longer since I've been in the office. It feels like much more than five or six weeks. For me, it's actually a little bit of a relief not being in the office because the onslaught of books there is relentless. And they all there's always something interesting to grab and hold on to. And, and you just start to stockpile them. I'm sure they all have layers of cobwebs on them at my desk now. Um, but it means it's turned me back to my home bookshelves and the books that I stockpiled and hoarded and never read there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've started kind of picking things up and revisiting them. So I mean, I sorely miss being in the office. I miss the social camaraderie of being there. And I do miss the the incoming books, although we're getting a lot of them now electronically by PDFs and I'm still able to, to read new books. But I'm not sorry not to have kind of the physical piles all around me that at some point become just a management problem. I have to ask you guys this. Do you feel like the weight of your home collection of unread books, does that weigh on you? Because like for me, it's this constant source of guilt. Like how could you go out and buy that book or bring that home or read that like shiny new thing when you have these other books that, you know, you bought 10 years ago and still haven't read? No, no, no. I'm just, I'm an addict who denies he has a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I I like the endless possibility. Like I, I will read that someday. It's, you know, I'm really intrigued by this book. I look forward to the time when I devote myself to it. Yeah. I feel like I'm building a sort of bookstore in my house and it's a nice, (laughs) it's a nice feeling to feel like I could go to a shelf and browse and have a lot of options that I haven't read before. Are you finding it like your process of deciding what to read next? Is it at all changed or is it that same, whatever mix it is of impulse need curiosity? Mine's becoming pretty random based on my, like Greg said, I'm, I'm spending even more time than I usually do browsing my shelves at home. And so I think I am plucking things that I've just been either meaning to read for a while and haven't or something that it's funny. The This whole situation kind of gives us an excuse to live differently in some ways. I mean, some things are forced upon us, but other things you just say, well, why not read this now? I mean, there's no crazier time to read this. <laughs> so you take it down this I mean, it, it's, that's true for me too, except that it doesn't feel that different from the way that I always picked my books, which was kind of what's at hand, what interests me for one reason or another, you know, at, at any given time. There, there's always the element of randomness and impulse. I, yeah. And, and just kind of what the fates offer up. You know, I'm thinking of this period, and here's an analogy that neither of you will be able to relate to personally, but I think of it as like pregnancy. You know, it lasts a really long I time. Don't <laughs> it lasts you, a long time. It lasts a long time. There are certain things like drinking that you cannot do or sleeping on your stomach. Um, and, and those things, you know, weigh upon you heavily. But on the other hand, like the constrictions, the constraints become opportunities in a way. And there are certain constraints, certain things you can't do, like drink or sleep on your stomach. I, and, I'm still drinking plenty. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and yeah, I know. I, I'm. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the, the constraints are different here. But, you know, in the end, you kind of take advantage of what those constraints are. You sort of operate within it. And then at the end, just as it's getting really awful, you know, you can look forward to something on the other side. At least that's working for me now. But we're only, what, yeah. John, six weeks in. So mm-hmm. like mid first trimester. 
That's right. That's right. Talk to me in the second trimester where things really get heavy. Um, John, what did you pluck from your shelves this week? This is the perfect thing to follow up what I was saying because it's so random, but it's a fairly short memoir. I've also been taking short books. I don't know why I feel like right now I'm in the phase where I just want to get through as many as possible while we're in this strange time and I have all this leisure. It's a book called Keep the River on Your Right by a writer named Tobias Schneebaum, who this this was made into a documentary in, I think, 2000. And I believe a friend recommended the documentary to me, which I've still never seen. And then one day I was in a bookstore and I saw this and I thought, oh, it was based on a book. And the book was published in 69. Schneebaum was a New Yorker. He was an artist, a painter, and obviously a writer. And in 1955, when he was in his early 30s, he got a fellowship to write and paint in Peru. And he went into the Peruvian Amazon and he took it upon himself. I guess he just has a naturally adventurous or had a naturally adventurous streak. And he walked through the jungle with a couple of people and, and went to a mission where there was a small group of Catholics with a tribe there. And so he met an old sort of eccentric priest uh, and his his sidekick and a couple of other people with the mission. And then he met this tribe and learned a bit about their ways. And then he got a hankering for something a bit more off the beaten path. And so he decided to walk several days alone through the jungle to another tribe where there was not a mission or any kind of intermediary people to introduce him. And this was a tribe of, among other things, cannibals. And he met them. I mean, the scene where he meets them the first time is so strange. He he comes upon them and they they just look at him. They don't really have any reaction. And then slowly they sort of start to smell him and and lick him. And, I was going to say they whip out their utensils and serving <laughs> plates like what? <laughs> they all tuck napkins into their collars. No, they start laughing uproariously with him and he starts laughing and it becomes this sort of giddy, you know, they're hopping around like they've found someone new and he's happy to be there. And so he becomes friendly with them. He has sexual relations with some of them, men and women. He And eventually in this sort of climactic scene, they raid this other village and he, in a, you know, a couple of bites takes part in cannibalism. And he writes about what this, what this means and how he feels about it. He feels obviously not great about it um, <laughs> and, and a bit confused, but he's also someone who obviously feels the pull of non-society and kind of getting back to his, his wild self. But this is a guy who grew up in Brooklyn. He went to Stuyvesant High School, I'm pretty sure. He, he's a good writer. It's less than 200 pages long. He doesn't I, I think, overanalyze anything in particular. It's kind of diaristic and straightforward. I'm finding it really riveting for maybe obvious reasons. Yeah, and you're worrying me. You live in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I, I am one of the least adventurous people I think anyone's met. So, And I'm now well into my 40s, so I think the chance of me going down that path probably passed a long time ago. I like to live vicariously, so I'll do it. it it's hardly bucks. the same thing, but before this pandemic happened, I, I was seriously considering, I mean, to the point of, of researching the possibility of um, kayaking the length of the Hudson River from mm. its source in upstate New York all the way down mm. into New York Harbor and, and the ocean, which is about 300 and some odd miles, not the Amazon and no cannibalism that I'm aware of. Why? Why not now? That's good social distancing. That's true. I mean, for one thing, it's freezing right now. <laughs> this is not comfortable weather to lend itself to kind of the camping and, and immersing yourself in water. <laughs> I don't know, though. I don't know. I think this could be a second trimester project. John, <laughs> we're about to start closing our, our summer reading issues. So let's pick up that strand after the issue is closed. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Greg, what are you reading? Yeah, in the meantime, I am reading Brian Greene's new book, Until the End of Time, which applies theoretical physics to the biggest questions of existence. Like, for instance, why is there existence? <laughs> Which comes down to the first and second laws of matter, energy and entropy, and he goes into that at some length. But it takes a very wide view. He looks at, is there really free will, or is it just a function of individual particles following the, the laws of physics at a very big scale in your body, a scale that nobody could possibly calculate, but that if you break it down, that these are all immutable and there is no free will. It it seems like that's actually what Brian Greene believes, just that it's the appearance of free will because we'll never understand what's happening at, at that scope. Green, you may remember, is he's the Columbia physicist who um, first made a name for himself 
more than 20 years ago for the general public as an advocate for string theory with his book, The Elegant Universe. And maybe his greatest attribute as a writer is his clarity and his organization. He proceeds so methodically from step one to step two and so on that if you're a semi-intelligent reader at all, you feel like you fundamentally understand what he's talking about, even if you have no capacity for the deeper math behind it. And I assure you, I don't. (laughs) What about five days after finishing it? Do you still understand it? (laughs) Only the big picture. I mean, you feel while you're reading it, like you deeply understand it. And then five days later, what you take away is in some ways, he's like a, a high Latinate priest telling you, never mind the details. I've done all that. Here's, <laughs> here's the bottom line that you need to know. You know, here's what it all means. And that's the stuff that sticks with you five days later. It's a book that in some ways feels very much like it's in conversation with David Lindley's The Dream Universe that just came out, which argues that physics has become too theoretical. And you feel like Green, who is a theoretical physicist, after all, would disagree with Lindley. <laughs> <laughs> this book outlines his argument for the necessity and beauty of a theoretical framework for understanding everything. I still don't believe him about free will. Um, <laughs> Pamela, what are you reading this week? You know, nothing with large-scale philosophical implications whatsoever. I just finished reading a book by Joe Nesbo called The Thirst. And I understand from the publisher, Knopf, that it's Yo Nesbo, but I feel like <laughs> I, it doesn't sit well with me. I'm just going to do the American thing and, and mispronounce. Although it this, is fun to say, Yo, Yo Nesbo. Nesbo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's not fun for him to hear me mispronounce it either <laughs> if he's listening. But this is the second book I've read by him. And I guess the guiding thought I had going into it was this was one of the first books I read at the beginning of the pandemic was like, well, when the world is dark, go darker. Maybe that's the solution. I will say it's not the solution. <laughs> I, I I did feel like I was like, there was, you know, while other people were reading books about, you know, I don't know, needlepoint and like the home cooking and like this was not where you necessarily wanted to be, which is to say in Oslo, in Norway, which I continue to think of as the land of happiness, despite these dark murders taking place. I'm always intrigued that, you know, Iceland and 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 Norway, they have these very dark, gritty, murderous thrillers. And yet, like, I think pretty low death rates all in all and murder rates. So I, it's, I guess, just their flight of fancy for them. Well, it's the opposite of your go darker theory. It's like, if everything's light, do the opposite. Right. They have to invent this stuff. So... <laughs> The first Yo Nesbo that I read, I am calling him Yo. You're right, it is good. Um, the first Yo Nesbo that I read was The Snowman a few years ago while traveling in Germany. And that was another Harry Hole mystery. Harry Hole is his kind of, you know, very dark, alcoholic, detective, Oslo-based. And I think I read that book. I think the impetus was that the movie version had come out to scathing reviews. Yes. And I'm <laughs> I'm always kind of fascinated in like book adaptations that go very wrong. <laughs> so I wanted to read the book and then see the movie to just see kind of just how bad it was and what, what happened. And I can't, will say the movie is terrible. I mean, truly... <laughs> It's almost hard to imagine how it went so wrong, but I thought an interesting thing to pursue. With this, again, I went in for different reasons, and it's a completely gripping detective serial murder. What's this one? This is The Thirst. So the premise is that there's a Tinder addict who is murdered and everyone is baffled by the crime. There are very few clues. And she's murdered in this really grisly way in which she has been emptied of her blood. So they think that the killer is a vampirist, which is not a vampire, but someone who's obsessed (laughs) with vampires and seeks to replicate. So it's very, very bloody. And and there are a couple of serious MacGuffins in the novel. It, I did feel slightly, it, you know, it kept me going to the very end. Is this Harry Hole again? It's Harry Hole. And, you know, I had that slight feeling of like, yeah, there's a little bit of cheating going on here. <laughs> but, but it kept me going at a very fast clip. I was nonetheless relieved when it was over. So I enjoyed it. If, if, you're, if your thing is to go darker and, and that's what you like, the book is The Thirst by Joe Nesbo. I have a vague memory of you feeling similarly about Snowman, which was that, you know, it totally kept your 
pulse, <laughs> but that when you were done, you were like, okay, that's enough of that. Yeah, it didn't feel good. You know, I don't read a lot of these books. The other ones, the other authors that I've read multiple murdery detective novels by are Kate Atkinson and Tana French. Mm. And I think that what those novels do that I love is they're really, they're all very good on character. Yonespa is very good on character too. These characters are very well drawn. There is a, a dark and brittle humor and wry observation to both Atkinson and French that I think brings them maybe to a different level of, mm. of reading that I would that would make me go back more often to. Although I can't say I won't go back to Yo. I don't know. It's like a weird, <laughs> a weird attraction there. I think in a year or two you'll forget and you'll think. Those were pretty fun. I'll grab another one. (laughs) In the next pandemic, I I will Just because you mentioned a victim being drained of blood and vampirus, I I will just randomly recommend to people during the quarantine that they watch, if they haven't, the original movie, Let the Right One In. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, which is also from, I don't don't think it's Norwegian, but it's it's, uh, somewhere in that region of the world. And it's just a fantastically grim, well-done movie. Going on my list. Yes. <laughs> Scandinavian vampire movie <laughs> is the genre. All right, Greg, what did you read again? Brian Greene's Until the End of Time. And I read Keep the River on Your Right by Tobias Schneebaum. And I read Yo Nesbo's The Thirst. All right, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.